Raising Reconciliation. By hearing, by listening, we search for understanding and solutions concerning issues affecting multiple Indigenous communities. This is a collaboration between Mount Royal University's Indigenous Center and the Calgary Journal. Joining us today on the discussion with empowering Indigenous voices in the classroom are two special guests speaking about their experiences. My name is Amanda Grace Heavyrunner. My given name is Buxigyanaki, Little Blood Woman from the Kainai Nation. So I am Blackfoot. Um, I've been blessed with so many worlds uh, growing up. Uh, my background is from the Blood Tribe Reserve. I did. I was actually the last generation to, ten, to attend the Indian Residential School. Lawete Swale, Buffalo Teltsui. My name is Buffalo. Uh, that's a nickname that I go by. And it helps people to remember my name because my colonized name is Christopher. Nobody remembers Christopher or Chris or Chris with a K, so that's why I go with Buffalo. <clears throat> I'm from the Stalo Nation, which is the Coast Salish territories in, uh, the, on the West Coast, or I like to call it the Fresh Coast. And I went to school to become a civil engineer, and I went to uh, Lakehead University in Thunder Bay for my undergrad degree and for my diploma in technology. I went to Camosun College in Victoria. Right, so as you guys say you guys are students, how do you think Indigenous students feel when they're targeted in the class? Um, you know, I've been a student here. Uh, I'm in my third year. Uh, in the journalism, the core classes that I did attend, I feel like, <laughs> I don't even know if it was targeting, you know, but, you know, uh, my professor made it a point to bring up what was happening with the Indigenous peoples. So um, in a way, I kind of, like at one time we were talking about stereotypes. And there I kind of felt really, because <laughs> I think I was like the only, uh, usually I'm the only uh, Native person in the classroom. But this time there was, I think, two of us, two Natives that were me and another girl. and uh, But I felt very targeted at that time, you know, talking about the stereotypes. And, and I felt on the spot, you know, because we were, saying, well, what are the, some of the stereotypes, right? So we just, you know, he asked all the students. And I kind of found out kind of a new, like, what was new was that um, the non-Native students said uh, they were, I guess, surprised that Natives were attending the university because they said that they weren't able to afford it because we were very poor and yeah so that came up um so right there I was like surprised you know I was very surprised and um I thought well, how how divided are we in the uh, in the universities like there's such a divide still I yeah the feelings that I got were um I was uh, embarrassed I was I felt embarrassed, right? You know, and I think anybody um, attending class would feel that would feel that way. Um, it's a very sensitive subject. Nobody likes to talk about it. Uh, it's it's very new. It is very new still. So it's just like, how do we develop a way to, I guess, um, talk about these? You know, and I guess it's just uh, opening discussions, I guess, would be talking about it and not really like, okay, well, you know, just kind of pointing to the Native person in the classroom. 
and just kind of putting them on the spot. I don't think anybody should be put on the spot. I think there is a way um, to do it in a healthy manner. And what are those ways? And Buffalo, have you had any uh, personal experiences with this? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I would say I was the reverse. So I actually um, wanted to highlight the Indigenous uh, struggles in my civil engineering program. So I was always questioning um, my professors, um, how does this affect First Nations? How does this affect Métis? How does this affect Inuit? And they did not have answers. So it was um, very difficult um, to deal with instructors who are trying to teach you how to become a better engineer, whether it be teaching you how to do a road design, teaching you how to um, design a building, teaching you how to uh, manage the environment, environmental um, engineering side of things. And they did not have answers for me. Um, big questions that I brought to the table through my work experience because I, I had some work experience and understanding of what Indigenous communities go through um, on an engineering level. And the, and the professors had no clue. They had no clue. And uh, some of them were honest and said, look, I've never had this experience in my career, so I can't um, provide you any feedback. And others just blew me off. They basically didn't care. So I was the opposite. I, I wanted that information to be shared, wanted that information to be known for the students um, in my class as well. So they started asking me, um, between classes and, and, and study sessions, like, how does this work? How does that happen? <clears throat> and, of course, the biggest crisis we deal with um, in First Nations land is the water crisis. So we have communities that do not have access to clean water, clean drinking water. Um, the school I went to in Ontario was Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, and we learned that there were um, indigenous communities who had no power. They had no roads. So they were basically fly in, fly out. The only way to get there, they had uh, Hydro One deliver daily by plane diesel for their power. Um, I, I'm going to guess they didn't have drinking water. Right. So those are some topics that I brought up in my programs, um, in my uh, work work dealing with uh, the industry and w work with dealing with um, institutions that aren't prepared for um, dealing with today's um, issues in Indigenous communities. And how did this all make, make you feel? Uh, just disappointed in Canada, disappointed in um, our institutions, disappointed that our professors weren't taking time to understand how their um, inability to share common knowledge or common information that is easily accessible. Um, you're a professional engineer. You, you definitely know how to research. Um, you've got the experience. You've probably dealt with um, one or two or ten Indigenous communities um, on your projects. So, like, step up, Canada. What do you feel is your motive? Um, with my situation, I don't think there was any bad you know, um, to make me feel or the class to feel, um, I guess, dehumanized in any way, you know, or belittled. I don't think that was his intention. I think his intention was he wanted to highlight 
the relationships between Indigenous peoples and non, non-Indigenous peoples, especially in the classroom setting, you know. So um, I don't think there was any bad intentions at all. Um, what ways I think we need to approach this on what the instructors need to probably even take a look at, and like Buffalo said, even take the time. Take the time and saying, okay, well, what could we do to um, address this in a proper mo- uh, manner? You know, so there are ways. There are and healthy ways of coping, healthy ways of uh, making that connection and making everybody feel like they ha- their human rights are, are heard and um, attained in the classroom setting. And how do you and what do you feel are the steps that need to be taken for these professors to? Again, like I said, I think research, right? Truth and reconciliation, the undrip. Like I carry that pretty much um, and I keep that close to my heart only because of the fact it was just like, wow, the apology happened only in 2008. That's not very long ago, you know. And, uh, and and I'm really glad that it was addressed at that time. But just imagine, you know, on the Indigenous people, my people have suffered, you know, for a very, very long time. It's been seven generations. Um, you know, again, you know, Canada needs to step up. Institutions need to step up. Instructors need to step up their game and saying, okay, what could I do to even educate myself? Or do they know? Like, because I found out that a lot of Canadians in Canada do not even know what truth do not even know about the truth and reconciliation, the apology. They do not know about the undrip, you know. So Indigenous uh, peoples' rights. So um, if they start, I guess, at that, maybe then they could start feeling, I guess, empathetic instead of that apathy. And I don't like that apathy, you know. Um, I have a big heart. (laughs) So, you know, I I feel like I'm always being empathetic towards people's situations, you know. And but when that's not when when I do see a lot of people that don't practice that, it's a it's a big turnoff. I guess it's a challenging subject for everybody. Nobody wants to acknowledge the truth. So the truth and reconciliation, um, as has been taught by me, by my elders, was we need to talk about the truth, and it's not easy. And it's Canadians, um, I'm going to call you um, treaty people. So the treaty people that live here in Canada that are fortunate to set foot on our traditional territories and take advantage of living here in a country that has everything you need. We have water, we have uh, land, we have resources, and we're abusing it. And so people are feeling guilty. People are feeling as though they would rather sweep it under the carpet and avoid it than standing up and saying, hey, understand what happened in the past. Understand that wasn't my fault understand that that was my ancestors that came here and did this to the people here and I acknowledge that it's not right and I acknowledge that today we can't do a heck of a lot about it but but I can choose to step up understand the people the understand the people in the territory that I live in understand that they've 
um, gone through a whole lot of trauma, a whole lot of... Um, my therapist uh, mentions the word woundings and to help with that process of healing so that we can move through the reconciliation, quote-unquote, process. Um, I'm not a real big believer in, in that word anymore after I hear prime ministers and ministers and politicians and even chiefs use that word without understanding it. And it's a disappointment to see... Um, it just be thrown about and you just, you have a little sticker, a label that says reconciliation and you bring it with you and then you stick it here, stick it there. And now you've got reconciliation stickers everywhere, but you don't have the truth behind it uh, a lot of the time and you don't have the actual intention of the word. So one of the things that I was taught is that language is um, actually an agreement. So when we make a conversation, or if we use a word like hello, that's an agreement that you and I make. When I say hello, you understand that the agreement is, that means it's a greeting, it means hello. You're welcome here, or I'd like you to say hello back. Maybe you have a person who doesn't agree with that word hello, and maybe they use it like the reconciliation sticker and just place it anywhere, and to them, hello doesn't mean the same. So that agreement on what that word means is different for them, and that's, uh, that's what I see with the, the word reconciliation. What do you think are the best practices for these professors to get it right? Um, I think I, you know, what I like to see is probably having the professors even devise an event, a gathering, actually, even a conference, and get together and talk about this. Talk about what you guys are talking about, right? One of the 94 calls to action, directly one of the actions is um, for education. So what are they going to do to stand behind that? And I think that's a really big one. Um, I would love to see the... I would, I would love to see all these institutions get together and, and, and talk about this a lot more, not just once a year. And find out, okay, what we can do to, to start breaking this divide. Start, let's start collaborating. Let's start getting to work, working together um, where everybody, you know, feel, feels good walking into an institution and walk, you know, being, feeling very welcome. You know, we all have our safe spaces and, and that is really good. Um, but how can we get even having the space, uh, safe spaces get together instead of just having everyone so closed in, right? Hey, so having a big event would, I think that would, would really help break those, those stigmas. And Buffalo, how do you feel about that? First off, start by uh, acknowledging the territory that you're residing in. Um, sometimes you're um, directly um, next door to a First Nations community. So Mount Royal University is neighboring Sutena. Um, th that's the community that um, resides like literally across the road. It's across 37th, I believe. I'm not from here, so I'm learning. MRU can, can go over to the reserve and talk to the community and perhaps bring on some resources, some capacity, build some capacity here for their students. I'm sure they already do. I'm not very familiar with... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yes, they do. They, they have... They've, 
um, a lot of Sutina uh, students do attend here at Mount Royal University, which I'm seeing a lot more now. Like so, you know, there there is a connection, but I don't know how how much, you know, right? So. And so, um, not so much the students that I'm worried about because the students are always going to fill seats because mm -hmm. that's the the mandate. Mm -hmm. But what I'm more concerned about is accessing uh, leadership, chief and council, or administrative staff, mm -hmm. or more importantly, the knowledge keepers, so the elders. So maybe they bring in an elder once a week to do um, a ceremony, perhaps, uh, with the student, uh, the Inis is it Inisco? Inisco. Yeah, the best practices um, for so, these So that's one step. So acknowledge the land that you're on. Um, learn a little bit about the history. So that's going to take you like an hour if you go on Google. Everybody can access Google. <laughs> Grandpa Google, we call them. Um, that, that's one step. Another step is to um, acknowledge the students. So, for example, like Grace, Gracie here being acknowledged as a, as a journalist student and uh, coming from uh, Gaina? Gaina, yeah. Gaina, um, down in the south. And, and maybe, you know, Uni University of Lethbridge can get involved with uh, facilitating that down, down in her territory. Um, it, where I come from, NBC, we definitely see a lot more of that. We have uh, at UBC a First Nations Longhouse. So we have a whole building dedicated to the First Nations students uh, or Indigenous students as we, we try to term it now. And there I went there for a summer program for, it was called Sanala Honors Program for high school students that were in grade 11 considering university as an option for after high school. And so it was like an honors program. And they brought in about 36 youth from across, or young leaders from across uh, BC. And they picked um, people from different regions to help balance it. And that was my first experience learning that there were other communities other than my own. So my whole life, I just understood that uh, I'm Stalo, I'm Coast Salish, and those are the people here in BC. And now today, I understand there's 203 bands in BC. 203 bands. So a band is essentially like a municipality. So if you think of uh, Calgary being a city, um, they're a municipality, and then you have like Lethbridge, or you might have Red Deer. Those are an example of what a band represents. Um, and there's 203 different bands in BC. So imagine 203 cities that First Nations are a part of separately. Um, they, they are a part of the same um, nation. Um, so for my territory, we're the Stalo Nation, and in my language, that means people of the river. So we have about 20 to 30 bands that comp comprise our nation. So 20 to 30 cities make up this region of, let's call it, southern Alberta. Um, so that's something that professors can, can learn, and maybe it's a course that they take in the summer while prepping for the class schedule in fall that each teacher or professor, instructor is able to do before um, starting class. So that'd be one solution I offer. And uh, do you think this just affects Indigenous students or it's like all margin or like marginalized groups? I'm, you know, I, one of my best friends um, is, uh, is from a, a minority herself. And uh, we met in the journalism program. And I have to say, um, uh, you know, like I said, I, I feel like there's always, there's such a divide, right? So Canada's trying to wake up, you know, so, but it, it, it's it's still taking its time. So uh, nobody would really 
be really talk, you know, wasn't really talking to me. And I had to, I, I approached her and we were very shy too, right? I, I can't say I'm a real shy person because they, you know, my passion is journalism, right? And, uh, but so I approached her and we just clicked. <laughs> we just clicked. But when once we started talking about even racism and discrimination, you know, um, we had a lot of, we had a lot of stories that we, you know, that I was just like, wow, you know, that's what happened to me, you know. So I can honestly say it doesn't just happen to Indigenous peoples. It happens to minorities. And how do you feel about that, Buffalo? Yes, I agree. Um, <clears throat> in my field of work, the majority of the leadership or the management are white male and they're all over 50 years old so it's a an industry that struggles with um, bringing on the marginalized people such as women such as uh, disabled uh, or handicapped and um, pe persons of color POCs and every time I go and work for a company or volunteer at an organization event um, surrounded by white males and so it's really challenging for me in that career path that I've chosen to be able to work in a good way and not um, feel kind of threatened by not filling the, uh, the typical role of being a white male uh, engineer. And so I find it easy for me to connect with other um, engineers that are in the same boat as me. So there'll be two women, in, two, two women engineers in my company There'll be 20 white males, and there might be one other um, uh, male that's a person of color. So it's a lot easier for me to relate with them and to, to unite with them, whether it be um, joining the same committees at work together or joining uh, volunteer organizations together. And then there are the younger um, engineers that are coming up, and they, they've lost that, uh, um, I guess, feeling of having the power and having all the control and being more um, open to working with anybody and not seeing uh, race or color or uh, gender as a defining barrier to being able to be a productive uh, engineer at the end of the day. So that that's the positive signs I'm seeing in my industry. And it's, it's uh, inspiring to see when, when you, you go to school and you see half the school is um, people from international countries. And so I get along with um, people from, like my favorite um, engineers that I, that I went to school with were from Nepal. So the Nepalese are very similar to my people in the Fraser Valley uh, near Vancouver in that we have rivers, we have huge mountains and beautiful territory to call home. And as soon as we started sharing photos of our of our um, homelands, we just instantly knew that's why we bonded because we're very similar people. Where one day we're down at the bottom of the mountain in the in the valley in the river fishing, and then the next day we're up hiking up the mountain for, you know, to get medicines and and harvest uh, berries. And so that that builds a great <clears throat> a great connection um, through the land uh, between uh, fellow engineers that come from different backgrounds in different countries. What do you want listeners to get out of this podcast? Like, what is the main message you think that listeners should know? Um, quite simple. Quite simply, um, my college has asked me to return to the school and offer 
uh, my insight, my expertise in indigenizing the civil engineering program. And I turned them down. I said, no, I'm not going to take part in what you're trying to do. You cannot just take red paint and paint the civil engineering program with a red color to, in, to express indigenization. And I gave them three articles written by PhD master's students in Canada on decolonization versus indigenization. And indigenization is essentially painting your program or your, um, you know, maybe, maybe you're painting your face red to say signify that you acknowledge that we're now in a position where we need to, to uh, indigenize this program or indigenize our course. But what we really need to do is give that, um, open that space up for indigenous um, instructors to come in and whether it be just for one class, let them teach that portion because uh, what I read in that article um, was you can't have a non-native person or non-indigenous person come into a class and teach them about residential schools because that's what's happening today in the quote-unquote indigenization of um, post-secondary. So they can do it. They can read out of the book. They can do all the research they want, but they don't have the lived experience. They don't have the intergenerational trauma that comes from that. And if you bring in a First Nations or an indigenous person who's lived it and gone through it, your class will understand and they will be able to um, bridge that gap that's there right now and it will lead to a better um, society today moving forward with the TRC. You know, there's no need to look down on one another. There's no need to say, well, I'm better than you because I have the white skin, right? So, um, you know, let's, let's think about that. You know, and I really want, I want Canada to think about that. Yeah, I'll just mention one of the things. Um, one of the things I do personally is I wear um, political-inspired clothing. So the sweater I'm wearing today has got two things on it. Well, three. Uh, number one is Section 35 is the, uh, the institu- uh, part of the Constitution that protects First Nations or Indigenous people. So that's the name of the company. Um, and on the arm, he's got 1491 listed. Do you know your history? Do you know what 1491 represents to Indigenous people? Mm. Do you know the, the saying 1492? I've never heard of it. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. <laughs> so 1491, we didn't have contact. That was pre-Columbus contact. Right. Imagine 1491 to, through the eyes of an Indigenous person. We didn't have to deal with all the you know, BS that we deal with today. Mm. So that's what that signifies. And then on the back, it says, uh, we were not the savages. So I'll just show it for the Facebook Live. <laughs> <laughs> we asked Gabrielle Lindstrom, Indigenous Studies professor at Mount Royal University, for an insight on targeting Indigenous students in the classroom. Lindstrom believes it stems from a professor's lack of knowledge and maybe an unwillingness to engage with issues regarding Indigenous history. It can also be that even professors think that Indigenous students want to be more inclusive in the classroom. She adds, it could also be related to a lack of confidence in trying to teach about Indigenous issues, which points to a deeper issue related to why they don't know what they don't know. If they don't critically engage with the roots of their own ignorance, then they won't see the relevance in anything related to Indigenous peoples. Thank you guys for coming down to talk about this topic. That's all we have for today, and thank you for tuning in. Uh, Thank you very much. That was pretty good.